Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Future of the U.S.-Israel Alliance at 75. Please welcome Victoria Coates, Vice President of the Heritage Foundation's Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. Thank you all for joining us today for this uh, profoundly timely event on the 75th anniversary of the U.S.-Israel Alliance. I'd like to start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray for all of our friends in Israel. We pray for all Americans that they stand with our Israeli friends and with the Jewish people in this terrible time. We pray for your guidance and your wisdom as we go through these, these discussions today and not only celebrate the 75th anniversary of the U.S.-Israel Alliance, but look forward to the hundredth. Amen. So I did mention there is something kind of providential about the timing of this event because Eli Kohanim and I have been talking about this for two years. And so we had actually hoped to have it this May and I was upset when it got rescheduled and, and felt like I had failed. But to be able to join together today and talk about these topics, uh, to talk about the U.S.-Israel Security Alliance and the scourge of anti-Semitism two weeks after the horrific attacks of October 7th is a huge privilege and responsibility for Heritage to host these discussions. And I'm very excited to uh, hear what everyone has to say and, and hopefully engage in this in the spirit of looking at the next 25 years and what, what can come of this. Uh, one other quick thing I wanted to mention, it being October 23rd, this is also the 40th anniversary of the Beirut barracks bombings. Uh, and it's a date that's been very powerful for me because the day after, on October 24th, my former boss, Don Rumsfeld, got the call from then Secretary of State George Shultz to come to Washington to meet with President Reagan to, talk, to become his Middle East envoy and to manage the crisis afterwards. And so working with uh, Secretary Rumsfeld after his retirement on that topic was in many ways my introduction to the Middle East and my introduction to terrorism. Uh, he always referred to the bomber uh, by, I think there was a quote about this at the time, as smiling death, that, that as that uh, truck, truck bomb pulled into the barracks, uh, the, the driver was smiling. And you know that is so profoundly chilling for us as, as we do comp, uh, contemplate the horrible events of, of October 7th and the glee with which the terrorists apparently carried out their atrocities, uh, that this is unchanged over the last 40 years. So clearly we have our work cut out for us. We are very fortunate today to have representation from the Embassy of, of Israel, and it's my great pleasure to introduce my friend, the Deputy Chief of Mission, Aliyev Benjamin, who is uh, who previously served as the uh, 
chief of the Mideast Bureau at the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, so we ha have something of a history together. Going back a few years, uh, he has had an extraordinarily distinguished career at the MFA, including tours at both uh, in both China and previously in the United States. So it, uh, if, yeah, if you can all join me in welcoming Deputy Chief of Mission, Benjamin. Thank you, Victoria, for those kind words. Thank you for having me um, here today. I'd like also to thank uh, Robert Greenway, um, as well as Victoria, too, uh, for putting this uh, event together. Thank you, Senator Ernst, for, for being with us, Congressman Roy, Ambassador Ron Lauder, whom you will hear from uh, a bit later as well. We're gathered here today to talk about the 75 years of alliance between Israel and the United States. Something I remember speaking to Victoria about already a year ago uh, when this was in the planning and when we had different things happening and different ideas. Not a single person in this room ever imagined that at 75 years of Israel, the Jewish people would experience the most horrific and deadly attack since the Shoah, since the Holocaust. On the morning of October 7th, 2023, Hamas initiated an unprovoked war against the state of Israel. October 7th should have been a festive and joyful day as the Jewish people celebrated the Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah. Instead, we were confronted with the devastating reality of Hamas's unprovoked attacks. Over 1,400 people who have been massacred and lost over 4,000 wounded and about 210 people who have been kidnapped. We still don't know the actual number. Amongst them also American citizens killed, injured, abducted. Thankfully, Judith and her daughter Natalie Ranan have been released. For me, like most Israelis, we've been personally impacted. My own brother lives in Ativa Asara, adjacent to the Erez crossing on the border of Gaza. Together with his wife and four kids, they spent 12 hours in their safe room in their house. My brother with his pistol outside of the window, hoping nobody would come. They finally found a narrow window of opportunity. They managed to escape, only to learn later on that their friends and neighbors two houses down were gunned down completely, an entire family. Israel is at war, and it may be a long one. It's not another round of violence. Israel didn't choose to start this war, but we will end it. As we respond, the IDF, one of the world's most moral militaries, will act in accordance with the international law and ethics. Israel is working hard to evacuate innocent civilians out of harm's way, whilst Hamas is doing everything it possibly can to ensure innocent civilians are in harm's way. Hamas, ISIS brutal attacks constitute a gross violation of international law, as well as severe crimes against humanity. 
This is a war of humanity against evil. The, abdu the abduction of anyone, especially of innocent, uninvolved civilians, including women, children, and el elderly, is, is a grotesque war crime. Hamas is not allowing representatives of the Red Cross to even visit the hostages or provide them with humanitarian aid or in even information of who is there, who is alive, and who is not. And I'd like to take this opp opportunity to call on every single one of you here and on the screens to call about their release immediately. Make no mistake, like every other nation in the world, Israel has the right and in fact the duty to defend its citizens against the brutality of terrorism. We will ensure that the Hamas war machine is eliminated. And for that, we will not and should not apologize. As for Israel's northern border, Hezbollah is responsible for all the acts of terrorism coming from Lebanon. Choosing to enter the conflict would pull the state of Lebanon into a destructive war. Israel doesn't, doesn't wish to have a multiple front war with Hezbollah, but we are prepared to do whatever it takes to negate any threats that come our way. As President Biden said, don't. As we are already seeing, the media's portrayal of the war has shifted. It's critical that the United States continues to support and stand shoulder to shoulder with Israel as it has done for the past 75 years. Since President Truman recognized the Jewish state just moments after our creation. Our two countries were founded on the bedrock of freedom and democracy with a shared commitment to oppose terrorism. President Biden's visit just last week expressed solidarity and support for Israel and highlighted the struggle against the rising threat of Islamic terror. His visit alongside the ongoing series of US senior diplomatic visits, the, Sen the Senate's CODEL just now, including 10 bipartisan members and the US military support are all a clear significant demonstration of the close partnership between the US and Israel. The United States and Israel's joint political and military coordination, bolstered by the steadfast support of the West, has expressed for Israel, has shown its rightful commitment to combating terrorism in this consequential war. The administration is currently requesting a supplementary allocation of over $10 billion to support Israel's security and strategic needs. Additionally, we have seen great military support through the US deterrence efforts by deploying projection assets such as aircraft carriers, both to the East Mediterranean and towards the Gulf. These are to further strategic support for Israel. Israel will continue to stand firmly against the terror threats in full cooperation and coordination with our long-standing ally. Congress exhibited a largely, a, a remarkable display of bipartisan support for Israel. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle came together to underscore their commitment to Israel's security and its right to defend itself. This unity transcended partisan lines as legislators recognized the gravity of the situation that we are now facing. 
Despite the overwhelming show of support from government officials, the rising tide of anti-Semitism in the United States is deeply concerning and underscores the critical importance of combating prejudice in all of its forms. Discrimination and hatred towards Jewish communities not only threatens the well-being of Jews worldwide, but also undermines the core principles of tolerance and inclusivity that the United States stands for. By raising awareness, educating the public, and taking concrete actions to confront this issue, we can work towards a safer and more inclusive society and for the security and safety of the Jewish communities across the country. Demonstrations against Israel that we are seeing now equals supporting Hamas and its terrorism. Israelis have found themselves caught in this relentless conflict, leaving them with little time to properly mourn their losses. Yet despite the overwhelming grief and sorrow, we stand resolute, refusing to be broken by the terror that we face. Israel has demonstrated remarkable unity and resilience as our citizens have come together in the face of adversity. In the midst of conflict and uncertainty, the nation has witnessed a profound sense of solidarity, transcending political, religious, and cultural divides. Israelis from all walks of life have rallied behind the common goal of safeguarding our homeland. Over 300,000 reservists called up for duty. This unity has been palpable not only among the Israeli people, but also in the political leadership with a shared commitment to ensuring the nation's security and sovereignty. With all the division and differences aside that we've been experiencing over the past year, we see how at times of crisis, the people do come together. And Israel even forms an emergency unity government. The unwavering determination and cohesion exhibited by Israel throughout this challenging period serves as a testament to the nation's resilience and our ability to stand strong in times of crisis, something we could not do without the ongoing support from the United States. Looking towards the future, sustaining bipartisan support for Israel remains essential for not only American foreign policy and regional stability, but also for the safety of the Jewish people. The relationship between the United States and Israel has deep historic roots and, str and strategic significance. While the specific geopolitical landscape may evolve, fostering bipartisan consensus on the shared values and common interests that un underpin this alliance will be pivotal. We do thank you for the ongoing support. We thank you for the support also going forward, which is so crucial to us. The 75 years celebration has changed, but 75 years together is a clear message that we are here to stay together. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Eliev. Please send our greetings to Ambassador Herzog and all of our friends back in Jerusalem. Thank you. All right, I'd like to begin our uh, first panel on the U.S.-Israel uh, security relationship. We are also very honored to have with us today uh, our senator from I the great state of Iowa, Joni Ernst, who has also uh, been doing some really uh, incredible work on the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, where she's been a very distinguished member and is just back from a trip to Israel. I believe was the the first U.S. elected official on the ground uh, after after the attacks, and so great pleasure to welcome Senator Ernst. She has a cheering section. Uh, and then also to welcome uh, Rob Greenway, who serves as the director of the Senator of National Defense here at Heritage, who will be moderating our discussion. Uh, and I will be serving as your uh, second panelist. Thank you all very much. Um, as already stated and captured by uh, the DCM, Steadfast support for Israel's security has been the cornerstone of American national security policy for every U.S. administration since Harry Truman. Since its founding in 1948, the U.S. has provided Israel with over $150 billion in bilateral assistance, focused chiefly in the security domain, and allowed it to address complex threats, which it has done. This has also transformed the Israeli Defense Forces into one of the region's most preeminent capabilities, and it's been tested many times, and as you all know, it is being tested yet again. The attack on the October 7th uh, was the most deadly in Israel's history. It was also the, the most deadly attack against U.S. Americans by terrorists since 9-11. And so in this, we are, we are not merely observers. We are, in fact, participants. Senator Ernst, the first question uh, I would ask of you is, because Israel has been the leading recipient of our security assistance for many decades now, and Congress is currently considering the supplemental as uh, Elie have mentioned providing additional resources following Israel's uh, second only declaration of war since 1973. Uh, how important has our investment in Israel been? Thank you, Robert, and thanks to Heritage for this incredibly Victoria timely uh, discussion. And uh, just simply put, it is very important that we continue supporting Israel now more so than ever. And I, I'll take us back a couple of weeks to when I was actually on the ground in Israel. I had already embarked on a uh, congressional delegation trip to the Middle East, and I started in the UAE, uh, was joined by the rest of my bipartisan bicameral delegation in Saudi Arabia. We were scheduled to go on to Bahrain and then into Israel, where I was joining in a conversation at the N7 uh, regional conference. And we were just leaving Saudi Arabia when we heard about the attacks uh, in Israel. And maybe like many of you, when I woke up that morning to find out about the rocket attack, my staff came to me and said, we can't go into Israel. Uh, Israel is being attacked by Hamas. And my thought was, well, we can wait a few hours. We should be able to go in not understanding the severity of the tax. They were like, no, this is not the normal because Israel is attacked all the time from Gaza. 
Um, this was not the daily occurrence of one or two lobbed rockets into Israel. This was an all-out onslaught against Israel. And as we let that absorb, um, it, it became more and more clear why we need to continue supporting Israel. Uh, we were able to push into Israel then on the 10th of October, um, much to the chagrin of our State Department, who did not want us traveling into Israel. Um, but the embassy folks on the ground were so thankful that we were there. And we were able to stand side by side with the Prime Minister, with Ron Dermer, with um, the opposition leader, Lapid, and just emphasize to them that the United States stands in solidarity with the people of Israel um, and against these horrific attacks by Hamas. Um, so as we're looking at this, Robert, again, simple answer, it's more important than ever. But not only do we need to continue to fund for defense of Israel, I would also say that we need to push back much harder against Iran as well because a lot of this is stemming directly out of Iran. Thank you very much, uh, Senator. And I know that your visit meant a great deal to our longtime partners and allies in that Iran's culpability cannot be, um, cannot be, cannot escape our attention. Victoria, is, Israel now is in the final stages, perhaps, of what we anticipate to be a long-anticipated ground invasion to destroy uh, Hamas and prevent it from being a threat. We've heard reports about the current administration asking for delays. What, in your judgment, should we be doing to support our partner and ally at this critical juncture? Well, thank you, Robert. Um, I think right now is the moment when all Israelis and all Americans need to hear an unequivocal message of support uh, for Israel's right to self-defense. And that's become something of, of a talking point. You know, Israel has the right to self-defense. Well, what do those words mean? That means that Israel has a right to exist without the fear of thousands of Hamas terrorists flowing across their border on a random Saturday, a day that's supposed to be a holiday. And you know, what's been very clear to me, you know, as we gathered the information that terrible day and have, have been digesting it since, and we're still getting uh, updates as they're identifying more bodies, uh, just the 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 very stark contrast between good and evil here. There are no degrees, there are no shades of gray here. There's good and there's evil. And so I think, thank you, I think what we need to do as the United States is put on a jersey. I think we should put on the white jersey <laughs> in this case and, and get in the fight. And obviously the hostage situation is profoundly difficult in, in, a, in, in a uniquely horrific way. Uh, we have both Israeli and American citizens, citizens from other countries as well. They didn't ask for their passports. They just took them uh, and dragged them back to Gaza. And I know that that is weighing on everyone's heart very heavily. But at the same time, uh, you know, is Israel cannot live with this threat. And unless it is eradicated now, we're going to wind up in a situation where this could happen again. And that's what's ultimately intolerable. So. You know, obviously, uh, from the senator's experience, from Rob's and my experience in government, there are a lot of discussions that go on. Uh, many elements of the United States government uh, would be involved in them. It'll be 
a complex uh, operation, but I think the message needs to be very simple, that the United States and Israel stand together. Could not agree more, especially on the stark contrast between good and evil, knowing what was perpetrated on October the 7th as additional details and confirmation come out is, it is, it could not be more abhorrent. Um, Senator, uh, you mentioned uh, Iran, and we know from Secretary Austin's uh, testimony in March that from January of 21, uh, Iran and its other surrogates and proxies have launched at that time 83 attacks against U.S. forces, to which we only responded four times. And in the last uh, seven days, by my count, we've been attacked an additional eight times by uh, Iranian proxies, chiefly in Syria and in Iraq. What, in your judgment, should we be doing, should the administration be calling for to address this threat? Well, um, I would say just having been a soldier and serving in that region, our rules of engagement anytime we went into Iraq was if you're fired upon, you fire back. Why are we not doing that as a United States of America? Uh, anytime we have a terrorist group, a foreign entity coming after our men and women, American citizens, we need to retaliate. We need to go back and go back hard. Okay, we need to make sure that these other countries, these terrorist proxy groups know and understand that. But what we have seen with this administration is an administration of appeasement. They will do whatever they can not to get on the bad side of an authoritarian regime, not to get on the bad side of terrorists, heaven forbid. Okay, we have seen this administration do everything they can to get a nuclear agreement with Iran, even going against the wishes of Congress, continuing down this path of appeasement. We just saw the release or the unfreezing of $6 billion of assets, uh, which I think contributed to uh, Hamas uh, and their attacks on Israel. Uh, we have seen this administration not enforce sanctions that are already in place. Iranian oil exports are at a five-year high, a five-year high. And the sale of that Iranian oil only goes to fund Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the Houthis, Hezbollah. So we've seen this administration do everything they can to make life easier for the Iranian people. But essentially what they have done is make the mission of Hamas and those other terrorist proxies much easier in achieving their goals of death to America and death to Israel. So we really have to get the administration to step up. We have our own efforts in Congress. I've led the way on many of these. And fortunately, I have Democratic partners as well. So it's not just uh, that all Democrats you know, feel we should do everything for Iran. Um, that's not true. Uh, we do have good partners out there that do support Israel. And I will be calling more and more on those partners to help us push back against this administration and their appeasement of Iran. Thank you, Senator. Very grateful for your leadership on this. It's been, uh, again, most welcome and incredibly clarifying. And agree with you completely that it's difficult to understand and uh, appreciate uh, why we are not responding to uh, really unparalleled provocation. 
Victoria, you remember from, uh, from our time at the White House, one of our efforts which ultimately was successfully concluded uh, and the Department of Defense was directed uh, in 2020 to bring Israel to within the central command area of responsibility for circumstances just like this. Uh, in your view, how has that helped uh, the United States and Israel prepare for what may be a regional escalation? Well, I may be taking my life in my, into my hands by lecturing you on CENTCOM. <laughs> uh, but it, it, I actually remember where I, I was when I was on uh, Senator Cruz's staff and learned that Israel was in UCOM, not in CENTCOM, uh, which made absolutely zero sense to me because Israel is not in Europe last time I looked. Uh, unless they've changed the map again, but but it just seemed so discordant to me. And there were a lot of reasons uh, that you know that they wanted to observe in NATO and do these other things. And then the real reason came out, which is that CENTCOM had basically become kind of the Arab military club, and that they were unwilling to allow the Israelis in. And I th thought that really just doesn't make any sense. Uh, and one of the you know, the very positive things that we were able to engage in uh, during during the Trump administration were, of course, the Abraham Accords and, and reaching uh, new new peace agreements for the first time in 20, 25 years between Israel and their and their neighbors. And, and you know, we brought it up at the time that, gee, maybe we can we can rectify this wrong. Uh, and as we go forward into the next 25 years of, of the relationship, have Israel actually be seen as part of its region, where it is physically located? And that you know, might seem symbolic, but I think it's critical because that, that arrangement, you know, the sort of tricksiness of having Israel in, in UCOM is one of the things that allowed others to kind of cast Israel's survival into doubt. Is it really a state if it's you know not even in the right place? And I think righting those wrongs, you know, recognizing Golan as sovereign Israeli territory, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, you know, these are, are very powerful messages about how the United States sees Israel. And then as we found out, that that helped others uh, with their clarity. So now that that the move has happened, I think uh, you know, as we as we look at the regional response to October seventh, you know, everyone is disappointed that we're not getting more fulsome statements of support for Israel out of the Arab world. That would be nice, but Israel, I think, is used to things not being terribly nice in the neighborhood. And what they really need is the Arabs not to attack, the Arabs not to demand Israel be removed from uh, from CENTCOM, uh, and they're pretty much doing that. So I think I think the kind of reality check we did, you know, with the, emblemized by this move, can hopefully going forward uh, lay the foundation for a real uh, regional security architecture that would include Israel. Uh, Israel actually would be central to it as a, a power projection point for the United States. And so that's why, you know, I think that move was important and why it can be. Uh, you know, really, really a sort of linchpin of what we do going forward. And I think we've seen positive comments from both quarters, both from the Israeli security establishment and from the United States, I think, and from Central Command in particular, that was long overdue. Um, and it has, in fact, made a tremendous impact on coordination, which at the moment, incredibly vital. 
There is, I think, um, fear and trepidation in many quarters about the prospects of regional escalation and conflict in this part of the world where it has been uh, systemic. We've seen uh, not that long ago the Biden administration's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. We left some $83 billion of equipment and infrastructure and reverted control back over to the same group that we took it from, which adds, I think, to that hesitancy. And we know that under then Vice President Biden and then General Austin, who was at the time Central Command Commander, they orchestrated the withdrawal from Iraq in 2011, which set the stage for ISIS and, in many ways, Iranian control over Iraq. Senator, you, you see and know the reluctance well. What is, uh, what is the best uh, way of making those that are concerned about our presence and the potential for conflict understand the need for the United States to be involved, but also the importance of Israel in the region and our support for it under these trying times? It is extremely important that we continue supporting Israel uh, because of the stability in the region. They truly are the kingpin there, um, making sure that we don't continue to see the growth of terrorist proxy uh, organizations under Iran. They are the ones that provide that stabilization, uh, that continuation of safety in that region. They are pushing back against Iran. So it's incredibly important that we continue to support Israel, work with Israel, but then also draw upon the Abraham Accords and make sure that not only do we continue to focus on peace efforts with Israel, but also tie in all of the other Abraham Accords nations that signed on to that agreement and pull in Saudi Arabia. Because in the Arab nations, Saudi Arabia is their kingpin. So we need to make sure that we continue on with the Israeli-Saudi peace agreement. I've heard people say, it's dead, it's gone, it's never coming back. That's not true, folks. That's not true. And the delegation that I led uh, to Saudi Arabia after we had our discussion with MBS, we actually left feeling very encouraged about the direction that the kingdom wanted to go. Um, they realize that if they want prosperity for their people, if they want greater educational opportunities for their people, Israel needs to be part of that equation. Peace needs to be part of that equation. The one thing that Iran fears is peace in the region, because all of these countries coming together, they provide a force against Iran. Um, I'm going to pivot, pivot back. Um, Victoria laid laid it out beautifully um, on why these nations need to come together and how we can work together. Uh, part of that is uh, security cooperation in the region. And because of the Abraham Accords and now working with the kingdom as well, we have been able to put in place through Congress, through the NDAA, my efforts on the DEFEND Act, on, and we're working on the Maritime Act now. DEFEND allowed us to pull together intelligence from all of these nations to provide an integrated air and missile defense system. So this is early warning to all of those nations that are now tied together in their air and missile defense, and it's allowed us to push back against the drones, the rockets, uh, any sort of missiles that would be coming from Iran or their proxies. So collaborating with all of these countries is incredibly important. Providing peace and stability in that region, 
just allows us to have peace and stability here in the United States of America as well. Anytime these accidents are happening overseas, make no doubt about it, folks, it is going to impact the United States of America. We can't turn a blind eye. And I'll give you just one example, 9-11. We cannot turn a blind eye. And we must always be prepared and make sure that our friends and allies are also prepared. There's no question and can't thank you enough for both uh, pieces of legislation, which are prescient under the current circumstances, vital, I think, to ensuring active defense. And we've got embassies, diplomatic and military facilities, and so the protection of our own forces, absolutely vital that coordination be established. Uh, you mentioned, uh, the, or the Abraham Accords were mentioned now by both of you. I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up in our last question before we open it up uh, to the audience for their questions. Um, Victoria, you're well familiar with the historic agreements. I think everyone now is. As Senator Ernst said, these are not dead, but in fact, I think, hold promise for the future. How do we regain the momentum of the Abraham Accords? How do we build on its foundations? And from a security perspective, how do we build a new and enduring regional security architecture from it? Well, I think we start by by not accepting the sort of premise of the terrorists, which is that peace is dead. Uh, and we re you just reject that out of hand. We keep the conversations going. We make very clear uh, through the United States Congress uh, that, that Congress continues to support these very, very strongly. I've been thinking back a lot to the summer of 2017 when we were first in the White House and had the terrible troubles in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. And President Trump had actually intended to very much go through with a peace deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians, the so-called deal of the century. And as that violence flared uh, and things really seemed to break down, it seemed, it seemed impossible. But really what came out of that was a recognition uh, tacit at first, but increasingly overt from the Arabs that they could no longer give the Palestinians a veto over their national security policy. And they, that, that, that they uh, could not condone any longer this just wanton violence, uh, particularly against civilians, which was not consistent with the Islam that, that they practice. So I think in, in, in this case, you know, by being very clear about you know the the nature of what the Palestinians have done, and you know do you really want to be associated with that, uh, or do you want to start to you know really chart a path to peace? And there there was a reason the conversations were becoming so warm between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and I think we all saw the extraordinary interviews. Uh, in September with both the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia and the Prime Minister of Israel, you know, talking so openly about their process and about their their movements toward peace. We can get back there uh, because as we don't give the terrorists a veto, we also don't give the Iranians a veto, uh, and that we continue to point out the huge benefits of these relationships to Arabs and, and Israelis alike and just make sure everybody knows this remains a top priority for the United States. It is indeed, I think, a time for choosing. And I think it's important not to forget the fact that there is very little sympathy for this type of conduct, and all of the countries in the region have confronted it in their own ways. And I think there's more sympathy for Israel um, in this particular moment than we can often appreciate. 
At this point, we'd love to invite and open up uh, for questions. We've got microphones in both aisles. We'll work in sequence. We'll begin here in front, sir, and then we'll go to that gentleman. Sir, you have the first question. And if you would, please state your name, your affiliation, and, and to whom your question is directed. Thank you. Thank you uh, for your comments. Uh, Dilman Abdul Qadir, president of American Friends of Kurdistan. Um, first, I want to just say that, you know, we stand with the Israeli people and Israel and uh, continue that, uh, that bond and the history that we have. Um, there's been a lot of conversations about Iran, and rightly so, Iran's uh, backing of these uh, terrorist organizations. Um, but how about the relationship between Turkey, which is a supposed NATO ally, and Hamas? As you know, Hamas has a office, a headquarters inside Turkey. Um, Hamas, you know, Erdogan has openly stated and tweeted that Hamas is not a terrorist organization and that Hamas is not designated as a terrorist organization in Turkey. Um, and so what does this look like for the United States as far as enforcing that designation with Turkey? If, you know, we tend to do as Turkey says, you know, if we look at the history with er uh, Erdogan, but, the, but Turkey doesn't do what we say. And yet Turkey continues to uh, receive that, that uh, backing just because it's shielded by NATO. Um, and as you as you know, uh, uh, the U.S. the Israeli consulate even in Istanbul was attacked. Um, there's a lot of pro pro Hamas uh, protests inside uh, Istanbul and inside uh, inside you know across Turkey. So what is the United States reaction, and what is how do you um, how do you think uh, Israel should react to this pro Hamas uh, alliance with uh, Turkey? Thank you. Well, thank you for your question. But I would just simply state that our administration needs to step up their efforts and put a lot of political pressure on Erdogan and Turkey. Uh, they need to disassociate themselves with Hamas, and they need to decry Hamas as a terrorist organization. Unfortunately, this administration, again, they're trying to waffle any way they can to appease everyone they can. Um, as, as Victoria just stated, this is not a gray area. It's either black or it's white. And we need our president and all those that work in this administration to make that very clear. These are adversaries. They are terrorist organizations. Um, so it, needs, it, it couldn't be any clearer. But unfortunately, until this administration wakes up, we're not going to see that political pressure. But we can build in Congress and push back where we can, but we really need a strong leader at this time. We don't have a strong leader at this time. I would, I would just add that, you know, we had been encouraged recently by, I mean, the, the, uh, the Israel Turkey relationship had historically had some very positive aspects to it, had gone through a terrible crisis, but Erdogan had had something of a, of a change of attitude towards that relationship over the last few years, and it had seemed like it was much less adversarial and could potentially get back to a better place. But I think, uh, echoing Senator Ernst, I think this is going to have to get have to get cleared up. Thank you for your question. Next question is gentlemen, and <clears throat> ma'am, we'll come to you next. Um, yeah, Pat Span, uh, I spent over 40 years in various parts of the IC, 
and my first trip to Israel was in 1980 to the consulate in Jerusalem, and uh, been there several times. And I, I guess my my question is, each of you, what do you view as the possibility of either a one-state or a two-state solution? It it seems like it has to either be one or the other, and um, I I just don't uh, unless unless the uh, Israeli constitution or whatever the, their founding documents become more secular, I don't see a one state working. And, and, um, but uh, then again, I don't see a two state working very well either. So um, maybe could each of you give some comments on that? Uh, well, conveniently, I, I wrote an op-ed in the, in the Daily Signal today, uh, my title of which was Jabotinsky was right. Uh, but uh, it, it was more uh, perhaps user-friendly titled uh, by my editor that until the Palestinians accept that there is no plan A, there can be no peace. So I agree with you right now. It's very hard to see any solution to this. Uh, but the reason I invoked Jabotinsky is 100 years ago, in 1923, he wrote a seminal essay called The Iron Wall, in which he makes the uh, observation that if the Arabs think they can eradicate the Jews, that is always plan A. And if they think that is possible, they will not move on to plan B. And what we found with the uh, Abraham Accords was that not only had certain Arab countries accepted that the, the Jews were not going to go away, but they had also realized they didn't want them to go away. Uh, and so that was what then led to that great that great leap forward. The Palestinians obviously are not there yet. If, if October 7th tells us anything, it's that they are still being fed the lie that genocide is possible in the Holy Land and that that is what they're going to pursue. So I think our goal now is to convince them that there is no plan A, that they're going to have to move on to plan B if they want to uh, survive as any kind of, of functioning entity. So I would see, posit that we need to shift a mindset before we can get to any kind of practical solution. And I, I don't have much more to add. I think that was beautifully put. Uh, those that that are waging war against the Israelis. This is their mission in life. This is what they were raised to do. And until that that changes, I'm not sure what that path forward is, truly. Thank you for the question. I'm sure it's shared by many. Ma'am, we can get a microphone here, and then we'll move to the second round, please. Hi, thank you so much for convening this panel. My name is Rafa Shams. Um, actually, I think I was—I had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Greenway give a briefing to my professional organization, the Academic Engagement Network, earlier in the year when things were a little bit more hopeful regarding the Abraham Accords. Um, I wanted to um, ask a question about this topic. What has to happen sort of practically um, regarding um, you know, developments on the ground for the Abraham Accords country, countries to kind of move away from their current somewhat neutral and definitely not pro-Israel posture. Um, there was a lot of hope, including on the people-to-people -people level, that there were these cultural exchanges, touristic exchanges, business exchanges, academic exchanges, um, and also a real move away from anti-Semitism as well. Um, what, what has to happen to kind of get the, get, build up that momentum again? 
Uh, thank you for the question. I defer to Senator Ernst, having just come back from addressing his exact same Cer subject. Certainly, thank you. And I think that just from hearing from a number of the leaders of those Arab nations, there is a lot more that we as the United States needs to do. Because I'll just give an example. In discussions with MBZ in the Arab Emirates, uh, he had stated that he entered into the Abraham Accords with the thought that, of course, they would continue with these great cultural exchanges, educational opportunities with Israel, but they also expected that the United States would engage heavily in those as well. And what we've seen over the course of the last several years is not the level of engagement that they had expected. Um, so we have seen this administration not fully embrace the Abraham Accords. They rather have let them fester a little more so than, than really fully engaging and embracing them. So in the former administration, we saw the Abraham Accords come to fruition with a great promise to all of these Arab nations that we would all be tied together in, in happy collaboration. And that hasn't come to fruition. He was sorely disappointed, and he let me know that. And he said, because of the void that's now been created by the United States of America, they do turn to others out there to fill that void. And if we can think of who out there is filling the void where the United States is not engaging, it's China. So they are turning now to the East and engaging more with China than the United States of America. And I think because we haven't engaged like we should have with a number of these key, very important Arab nations, they don't feel as compelled to stand behind Israel. And that's where the failure of leadership is really showing on the world stage right now. We need to engage more and not just take for granted some of these really incredible opportunities with our Arab friends and, and neighbors. No, I just, I would echo uh, Senator Ernst's point and, and the need for robust, decisive American leadership has never been uh, more clear. And, you know, we've, we've sort of had now these two and a half years of the Biden administration, you know, in 2021, we had in Afghanistan, in 2022, we had Ukraine, in 2023, we have Israel, uh, you know, are we going to face another massive crisis next year uh, in in international affairs? You know, one is obviously one springs to mind would be Taiwan, mm -hmm. but it, there could be any any number of others. And so I think you know, as as we as Heritage are approaching, you know, our, our project 2025, our role is simply to point out, you know, the very clear policy differences that that uh, that are. Are emerging on these on these issues, and you know, make a case that that leadership is going to be critical, and hopefully, uh, we will all be able to get behind a candidate who will demonstrate that leadership. Thank you all very much. I think we have time for two more questions. We'll head to the lady in the back. The second question. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was very insightful. My name is Daniela Ramos, and I come from an international organization that works mainly in Latin America. Um, we're worried, um, given the expanding and the extent of influence that countries like Iran, for example, has in our region. So our question is, how is the United States planning to re-engage the whole region 
um, especially when presidents like Petro, for example, has publicly expressed his support for Palestinian Hamas. Well, I think I think that's a critical question, and it's one that's too often ignored. We've we've seen Iranian-backed terrorists strike in Latin America. Obviously, we've seen them plot to strike in in the United States, uh, including a plot here in Washington in 2011 to assassinate the then Saudi ambassador uh, to the United States at Cafe Milano. I mean, how many Americans would have died there? And it's one of the reasons that we at, at Heritage have have declared border security one of our seven key priorities under uh, Dr. Roberts' leadership because this is a huge national security vulnerability. And I think what we need to do is obviously first get that under control to prevent you know, uh, bad actors from creeping across. But then, as you say, engage robustly with the region with uh, with governments that that also see this security risk, and you know, work on again a regional security architecture so that like-minded countries can collaborate and pool our resources. Uh, and I think that engagement has been sorely lacking. I'm I'm going to add on a, a little bit to that as well because anytime in the Armed Services Committee we have uh, leadership from the uh, Southcom come in, Southern Command, they will present us with what they call placemats, and it's a global view on a piece of paper where our adversaries are locating around the globe. And if you look at South and Central America and the influence of Iran, Russia, and China, they are everywhere. And we don't pay attention to that. And this is where I'm going to put on my armed services subcommittee hat for emerging threats and capabilities. That, that subcommittee has oversight of Special Operations Command. And these men and women in SOCOM are deployed all around the globe. And they work with local populations and create stability. And in this administration, as we look at recruiting and retention challenges, uh, and funding uh, challenges coming up with, with budget. Uh, we see the administration then asking to draw down the number of people in SOCOM. I think we're looking at a cut of about 4,000 troops in SOCOM. And these, again, are the guys and gals that are deployed everywhere around the world. And they seek to divert uh, those types of forces that might cause us to engage conventional forces in conventional actions. We would rather use our SOCOM individuals and uh, and push back on the presence of those adversaries in South and Central America. Yes, sir. Your question. Hi, um, Augustus Salzona. Uh, what do you think uh, the impact of the negative role that? our woke military has played in emboldening our enemies and causing some of our uh, Muslim allies in particular to sort of distance themselves from certainly the current administration, if not even past administrations? I'm going to jump on this. I was okay. going to say, I defer to the I, to I'm going to jump served. on it. So I do think it, it contributes in a number of different ways. Um, I think we can look at this from all different angles. Uh, the recruiting retention 
issue is most certainly one. Wokeism does contribute to a little of that. But if you look, I just want to give an example of one of the big priorities of this administration with our military, and that was the electrification of all of the non-tactical vehicle fleet by 2035. So they wanted to put EVs in place out there, and then as soon as the non-tactical fleet was in place, move on to the rest of the military. Are you kidding me? Um, electric vehicles for our military? You know, I was a transportation company commander in Iraq, and I can't imagine rolling a convoy up through Iraq and asking, excuse me, Mr. Iraqi, where's your charging station? It doesn't work. And this is what America looks at. And mothers and fathers out there are saying, there is no way I want my child to engage in this military with this kind of ideology. And then our adversaries are looking at us, and they are laughing. China laughing all the way to the bank, because they're the ones that would be producing those vehicles and the batteries for those vehicles. But they look at us, and they say, well, look at them. They're focusing on electric vehicles, not ensuring that they have the most lethal fighting force on the face of the planet. You know, and my daughter is active duty Army. And I want to know that we have a leader that's concerned about her welfare, training her and equipping her so that if she goes forward someday, she comes home safely. But that's not what this administration is doing. And you darn well better believe our adversaries are taking note. Here, here. Did you want to add No, I defer to you, too. <laughs> we do have time for more questions. Sir, the gentleman in the gray sweatshirt will go to the gentleman behind, and then we'll go to you, Pam. That may be it. Thank you. I'm, excuse me. I'm Leon Weinshaw, a retired member of the U.S. Diplomatic Service. You all spoke about the large sums of money that we're, we have been provided to Israel over the years. From all I understand, particularly in our relations to Israel, that is not a one-way street. I understand there are significant strategic advantages which the U.S. has accumulated over the years and still gets. I wonder if some of you might elaborate on that a, a little bit to help us understand that. No, I, I think that's that's really the critical uh, point about the U.S. security assistance to Israel, that this is not foreign aid uh, the way USAID practices it, uh, that that this is a partnership between our two countries. Uh, it, it has very real-world uh, benefits to the American people. Uh, you look at a system like Iron Dome, uh, which was originally uh, exclusively Israeli intellectual property, supported obviously by the United States Congress, but in the recent modernizations of, of Iron Dome, it's become joint intellectual property. And, and my personal favorite uh, uh, missile defense system, David Sling, was, was a joint project from the beginning. So, so we are developing these things together. It means our militaries are very interoperable. Uh, they're training on the same equipment, and obviously we do a lot of, of, of massive training exercises with them, which do keep the American people safe. And so, so I see this very much as a practical investment, which has borne significant uh, profits for, for the American taxpayer. Uh, you can have your moral 
case for Israel, but I generally just try to revert to the purely practical uh, and and say that 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 this is something that is hugely in our best interests. And then if we can, over the course of the next 25 years, build that out, uh, that partnership to become a regional partnership, even even better for for both of our people. And I'll just give a quick example on this as well. Uh, the systems that are, are developed and employed in Israel, they are developed jointly with Israelis and uh, engineers here in the United States and defense contractors. And in my little tiny community back home in Iowa, I grew up in a town of about 700 people. Uh, one of the ladies that I go to church with, her son, who graduated a number of years after me uh, from the same high school, but uh, he is a grown man now. He is an engineer, and he actually is an engineer on the Iron Dome project. So there is a far, far reaches across the United States and the number of people and type of people that are employed by these projects. So I would concur with Victoria. I think it's very practical as well. And it's yielded benefits over the years, and perhaps in the next couple of days and weeks will be even more evident just how important, how vital that cooperation and joint development is. We'll go to the gentleman behind you, and then, ma'am, we'll go to your question. Hi, uh, John Dixon, Global Peace Foundation. Uh, what drives me crazy, I was very active with Afghanistan, and after that horrible withdrawal, my colleague partner moved finally got out at the last minute with his wife sister-in-law and two boys they they stayed with me he watches very carefully he was a, an advisor to president Ghani and says that america is still giving the taliban uh, tens of millions of dollars a month and i know we give money all over the place thinking people like us and especially i think in uh, in gaza even and humanitarian aid and but we know all this money is fungible and it's not it doesn't it, it doesn't help our status with these people it empowers our enemies and nobody says even thank you it's even uh it's it'll always be taken with resentment and and doesn't make people like us more but uh less and i can't understand why we continue to do it and uh, if, and I don't quite understand all the, I don't remember all the numbers, I'm getting old, but I know that uh, it's not money well spent, it's money we borrow from China to give, and it's counterproductive, and I think it works always against us, is, is what it seems like to me. I wonder if you're, anybody's watching that. I, I will address this, because this is where I've been very critical of dollars that have gone to USAID, and I know Victoria just mentioned this, we've had discussions about this. And John, if you have followed some of, of my pushback in recent months, it is on uh, the taxpayer dollars going to USAID. USAID didn't have enough people to do contracts to push dollars out for humanitarian aid in Ukraine. So what did they do? They sent the money to the United Nations. Are you kidding me? We can't track it if it goes to the United Nations, and Russia has decision-making authority over where it goes when it goes to the United Nations. So uh, I have been very critical of this, and I do believe that in, in some of these cases, some of the countries, like in the case of Ukraine and Russia, uh, our European partners could better deliver 
on humanitarian aid than we can. And in the case of Israel and, and Gaza, maybe some of those Arab nations can better deliver upon humanitarian aid, perhaps in Egypt, if Egypt would just open uh, the, the border to women and children, allow them to come in and allow other nations to support humanitarian uh, needs. I think the United States of America, let's focus on what we do best, and that is uh, developing up uh, the weapons needed. I say weapons, not welfare. That's my catchphrase. Let's put it on a bumper sticker. Um, we can be the arsenal of democracy, and we should be, but we need to invest in our defense industrial base, and we need to ramp up, make sure that we, number one, we are strong in what we need for our armed forces, and then work to support our partners and allies as well. But we really need to scrutinize the humanitarian aid that's going overseas and make sure that our adversaries don't have access to it. I would, I would just add to that uh, that uh, Congressman Roy and I did an op-ed in the National Review at the end of July uh, about the upheaval in, in Jenin. And in the course of writing that, looked into how much money has been funneled into uh, particularly Gaza, but also other Palestinian entities. It's over a billion dollars. And, uh, you know, the, the old assumption, the sort of conventional wisdom, is that this would change hearts and minds, that over time it would allow Palestinians to build a society for themselves, that they would have more interest in preserving that than in blowing up Israel. Uh, and, you know, we tested that hypothesis in the Trump administration when the president directed the cutoff of all aid to the Palestinians after uh, Mahmoud Abbas's uh, really distasteful 2017 speech to the United Nations General Assembly uh, in accordance with U.S. law that if people who engage in virulently anti-American rhetoric should not get taxpayer money. And the assumption was that they, then this would cause tremendous unrest, but we didn't get a massive spectacular terrorist attack like what we saw on October 7th. And when the spigots were turned back on, basically immediately by the Biden administration, and we've had this billion dollars flow in, followed by the 100 million announced by the president, uh, some amount of the supplemental that they've requested in the humanitarian pot of about $9 billion, somewhere between zero and nine billion, is supposed to go into Gaza. Uh, you know, th this this is just, I mean, not only is it throwing good money af after bad at a time of fiscal crisis, but it's, it's obviously counterproductive. You know, it led to a massive, horrible terrorist attack that claimed American lives, and we just can't continue to fund this. An excellent question. As you can see, there's strongly held views uh, <laughs> on the panel about it, and rightly so. Ma'am, I think you have the last question. Thank you. Um, just to bring attention back to the home front a little bit, I noticed in some polling results that came out over the weekend, Americans are really, really concerned that the increased violence between Hamas and Israel um, with the current crisis at the southern border will lead to potential threats directly on directly in America and on American soil. I'm wondering what kind of policies you all see need, that need to be in place or um, what kind of discussions we should be having right now to make sure that we keep the conflict contained abroad? Obviously, uh, securing the southern border is key, whether it was the unrest in the Middle East or uh, anything that you see coming from 
South, Central America. Uh, we have so many foreign nations that are pouring across our southern border. Uh, this has been going on the entire time Joe Biden has been president. So not only do we need to secure the border, but then we need to really address the policies that are allowing people to stay in the United States and to enter freely. And our asylum laws, they've got to change. They have got to change. And we have to figure out a way to stop people before they enter into the United States. And again, I think a huge diplomatic push with a number of the countries that are on the way into the United States, working with their governments as well, will be key to this. I would say, let's just replicate everything that President uh, Trump had done during his administration, remain in Mexico policy, um, changing our asylum laws, whatever it might happen to be. But we've got to enforce our border security. We're not only having a problem at the southern border now, but they're also realizing they can come across our northern border. It's becoming more of a problem. And it's because we have this wide open door policy that President Biden has enabled uh, that puts us in jeopardy here in the United States. I guess I would, I would just add uh, to those excellent points that there were many disturbing things about the pro-Hamas demonstrations that we've all seen across the country. Uh, the blatant anti-Semitism, which I know will be addressed in the next panel, but also the numbers of people who are sympathetic to Hamas and their uh, sort of their methods, for want of a better word, that are already present in our country and are not shy. Uh, maybe the most disturbing was New York yesterday and the day before, in which these groups came together and started attacking the police. Uh, you know, now they're throwing eggs and water bottles. You know, when does it become worse than that? And so, you know, we have our concerns with securing the border, of course. We've got to be concerned with what's already here. The CBP numbers that have been released about, you know, the ones they know uh, that, that were encountered uh, and are all uh, from, from countries with, with potential uh, exposure to terrorism. And that's just what we know. So I think we have to be enormously vigilant and concerned about about what what's here and what might already be, uh, you know, planning planning mischief. Well, there's no question. Uh, the last 75 years have been eventful. They've uh, marked, in many ways, a, a close cooperation between the United States and Israel. We've covered a fair bit of that ground and brought it into current circumstances. I have only three things left to do. First, with your help, please let me, uh, let's thank our panelists for their tremendous contributions and their leadership on this issue. Uh, second is to preview the next panel, which will resume after the break, which is on enriching the U.S. alliance by combating anti-Semitism, which will be moderated by the ineffable uh, Ellie Kohanim, who was the Deputy Special Envoy for Combating Anti-Semitism at the State Department in the previous administration. Uh, and the last is to welcome you all to a 15-minute break, asking you to reconvene at 2.30. Again, thank you all very much.
Okay, if, if I can invite everyone to take your seats. We are right on time, so it is great pleasure to invite uh, my dear friend Ellie Kohanim and her fellow panelists for our second panel, Enriching the U.S.-Israeli uh, Alliance by Combating Anti-Semitism. Good afternoon, everyone. So wonderful to be here with you. Um, and before we start, I really want to just take a moment and thank the Heritage Foundation for Dr. Kevin Roberts and for Victoria Coates, who um, for a while has been, uh, you know, thinking about holding this important conversation about the U.S.-Israel relationship. And uh, and we were talking this weekend, and she said she she believes it's divine providence because. Who knew um, how important this conversation would be at this moment in time? So again, so grateful to you, Victoria Coates, to Heritage Foundation for, for having us today. Um, I want to start with uh, introducing my esteemed panel here, who I'm so honored to be moderating this conversation. On my right is Representative Chip Roy, who's a devoted husband and father of two, currently serving his third term in Congress, representing Texas's 21st Congressional District. Um, so it's an honor to have you with us, Representative Roy. Next, we have Ken Marcus, who's founder and chairman of the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law, also a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for Liberty and Law at George Mason University Law School. And um, formerly, I'm going to get this right. Sorry, there's just so many titles here. Formerly U.S. Assistant Secretary of Education for Civil Rights, among other, uh, among other tremendous accomplishments. And last, we have Dr. Charles Asher Small, founder and president of the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy, ISGAP, and director of the ISGAP Wolf Institute Fellowship Training Program for Critical Contemporary Antisemitism Studies at Cambridge, also a prolific author and writer. Wonderful to have you with us, gentlemen. Um, I'm going to start by um, just framing a little bit where we are today. I think for um, for Jews all around the world right now, we're in a, in a state of shock and horror. On October 7th, while Jews in Israel celebrated the Simchat Torah holiday, Hamas infiltrated the Jewish communities of southern Israel, massacred 1,500 people, committed atrocities not seen since the Holocaust. Israel says that 80% of the 1,500 murdered that day were tortured first. Hamas kidnapped young women, young women, toddlers, babies, elderly. And it seems to have unleashed the forces of hate across the world that day. Congressman Roy, I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think the American response should be in, at this unprecedented moment? Do you see anti-Semitism as an element of what took place on October 7th? And also, could you comment, I know this is a lot, if you could comment on the calls for ceasefire and the notions of proportional war. Well, first of all, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks to Victoria. Uh, thanks for her leadership on this issue. Kevin Roberts, uh, Heritage Foundation generally. Uh, this is such an extraordinary, um, extraordinarily important issue. And, uh, you know, it's no accident that of the, I don't know the exact numbers, my memory, 16 point X 
million uh, Jews around the world that, you know, 80 to 80 whatever percent uh, of those individuals live in the United States or Israel, right? About equal numbers, roughly, between Israel and the United States, and then the rest scattered around the globe uh, with a few in Europe and then scattered around. Uh, that is because of our strong um, connection and relationship with Israel. And importantly, and it is a connection of faith, it's a connection of people, it's a connection geopolitically, it's a connection in terms of our shared national security interests, and it's it's unmistakable, and it should remain unmistakable. And so you asked me what the response should be, and the response should be overwhelming uh, uh, force to uh, send not just a message, but to win. And, you know, people want to Monday morning quarterback and second guess, and I saw some news accounts, and you, you talk about what would we have been doing with 24-hour news looking at every uh, bomb dropped in Germany or every bomb dropped in Japan or every war that we've ever fought. Uh, wars are costly. Wars are messy. Wars kill people. Um, none of it, no, That's lost on no one um, in terms of humanity. Uh, but there's a cost to allowing terrorist um, uh, leadership of your country. There's a cost to it, and that's what we're seeing in Gaza. And uh, Israel cannot back off, and America cannot back off in its support of Israel, period. Um, it, you, you ask about this, this uh, ceasefire. Uh, I've heard the administration talking about the need for a ceasefire to get like $100 million plus of whatever of aid and humanitarian aid. Now, again, there are human beings who are in the crossfire. But let's remember that let's start with the human beings who are the targets, uh, predominantly Jewish, uh, Israeli citizens, some Americans who are the targets of the terroristic, barbaric actions of Hamas. That's where this started. And it is up to Israel and the United States supporting Israel to finish it. And we have to remain vigilant in that endeavor. Um, there is, throughout our history in dealing with wars, there is, of course, the proper place for dealing with humanitarian needs and the Red Cross and dealing with uh, the, the clear interests of, of humanitarian relief. But under no circumstances can we allow that to be a ruse for getting gas and getting fuel and getting supplies to our enemies. And that's, that's what we've got to make sure we're standing vigilant against uh, and not blink in the face of worldwide pressure when we need to do what we need to do to ensure that Israel can win this, which is, of course, a win for America. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, Ken, I'm going to come to you now. Um, not only did we see these horrific uh, crimes, atrocities uh, committed against the Jewish people, but before Israel had even responded, we saw students across college campuses come out and protest and rally in support of Hamas. Tell us a little bit about your assessment, what's going on on our college campuses. There is something called the Marcus Doctrine that's attributed to you, if you could tell us also what the Marcus Doctrine is and, um, and how it ties into what we're seeing today. I, thank you, Ellie, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation. Um, I have been fighting <laughs> campus anti-Semitism for uh, some 20 years. Um, it gets worse and worse, but never anything like uh, the last couple of weeks. Uh, it has been surging over the last couple of years, uh, but it really has uh, been something unlike anything we saw before. Think about what's happening now. 
what we just saw, and as Ellie described, was uh, mass torture, uh, murder, rape of uh, civilians, uh, burning people alive, decapitation. The immediate response from college campuses in many places was to support the terrorists. Uh, in one case, a professor talking about being exhilarated. In many cases, student groups arguing that we should join the resistance, meaning uh, the uh, genocidal attack on Jewish people. This goes beyond the hostile environments that we have seen over recent years. What we're experiencing now is a mass coming down. Once we see it, we can't unsee it. For university presidents and the public, we now have to face the fact that on our college campuses, something monstrous is developing. We have very substantial movements of pro-Hamas, pro-terrorist, pro-genocidal groups at some of the most important universities in the United States. Right now, there are university presidents arguing about whether they should or should not issue a statement. Those presidents who either don't issue a statement or want a both sides statement are utterly incapable of understanding the moral issues. But even those who do issue a statement, and even a statement with moral clarity, it's just a statement. If you are the president of a university today, you are now aware that for all the millions you have put into DEI, you have created the opposite of DEI. For all that your admissions have done to create a student body that reflects the values you pretend to hold, you have created a student body which is in favor of murder. For all that you say that your curriculum should do more than just provide uh, information or critical thinking, you have curricula that is training pro-terrorist people. It's beyond statements. We are at a time that if you are a university president and you have not thought about cleaning house, you shouldn't be there. It's not about do you issue a statement. It's about do you realize that you are running an institution that is fundamentally and totally wrong-headed in its approach and that is sending this country in the wrong direction. Even a good statement isn't enough. You asked about what I call the 2006 policy and what other people call the Marcus policy or Marcus doctrine, and there's perhaps an obvious reason why I call it something different than the others. That's the notion that Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits certain forms of race, color, national origin, discrimination in the public schools and in colleges and universities, but that doesn't mention religion, nevertheless protects Jews and certain other groups that have ethnic backgrounds as well as religious ones, based on the notion that a group which has ethnic or ancestral characteristics shouldn't lose the protections that they would have if they did not have a, a shared common faith. The Biden administration, to its credit, has just expanded the use of the Marcus Doctrine to include not only the Education Department, whose civil rights agency I headed, and the Department of Justice, but also eight other agencies. So there are now 10 cabinet-level agencies. I'm pleased with this. This is something that's taken some 20 years to establish. But once we have this notion that they're going to deal with anti-Semitism, are they going to deal with anti-Semitism? Because the signs aren't great. 
The signs really aren't great. Okay, so now they know they have to do something. Let's see them do it. Bravo to that. We'd all like to see them do it. Um, Charles, I'm going to come to you, but um, but go back to Hamas, if I may. Um, could you could you break down for us a little bit about the ideology that's inspiring this war on Jews and on Israel? We hear a lot about, you know, is this about land and despite the fact that Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza back in 2005. So first of all, I'm honored to be here, so thank you for inviting me. Um, I want to first start by saying Professor Elie Wiesel, who was the founding president of ISGAP, the research center that I head, always taught that anti-Semitism begins with Jews, but it never ends with Jews. This is not a parochial problem for the Jewish people or for the state of Israel. This is a problem for all good and decent people around the world, and I think especially in this country. So once this form of anti-Semitism or hatred is unleashed, it knows no boundaries. And it, it attacks, starts with the Jews, but doesn't end with the Jews. It, it, it attacks everything that's good and decent in our society, including institutions and our values. And what we're beginning to witness in this country, in this country, in 2023, is unadulterated anti-Semitism. The fact that students at our best universities and professors at our best universities and, and, and are turning out our leaders. Universities are the most important institution in our society. This is where young people go to learn how to become citizens. That our journalists, our industrial leaders, our, our professors are learning that killing innocent people is a form of decolonization and resistance. This is not just on the campus led by Students for Justice in Palestine, which is an offshoot of the Muslim Student Association, which is a Muslim Brotherhood organization. Those are the shock troops on hundreds of campuses in this country. But this is happening in the classroom, and not just in Middle East studies, but in philosophy, in theology, in the social sciences and the humanities, and now spreading into the schools that are, that are professional schools. This ideology in our universities comes about after decades, decades of billions upon billions of dollars being pumped into our finest institutions. This is the research that we're doing, billions of dollars. Some of it coming illegally and some of it coming legally. Oxford University where I studied, Yosef Kawadawi started Islamic studies. Yosef Kawadawi was the head of the Muslim Brotherhood who preached that the true believers need to complete the work of Hitler. This is the gentleman that became the first director of Islamic studies at Oxford University, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood. But the infiltration of this ideology at our finest universities come with the presidents of the universities and the heads of development's offices knowingly taking money from people who preach the killing of Jews, the destruction of Israel. But they forget to look deeper that this ideology is also opposed to democracy and to weakening democratic countries and including the United States of America. So very briefly, Hamas has an ideology that comes out of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Brotherhood started about 100 years ago as a reaction to British colonialism and is the root of political Islam. Hamas, Hezbollah, the Iranian uh, revolutionary regime, Daesh, ISIS, they all come from this root. 
They fused a very narrow understanding of Islam. I'm not speaking about Islam. I'm not speaking about Muslims. The vast majority of Muslims are good and decent people around the world. But political Islam fuses European anti-Semitism, genocidal hatred of the Jew, with this narrow form of Islam. And they fuse this, and, and, and they're influenced by the Nazi party and European fascism and anti-Semitism. And they want to rid the region of all foreigners. They call for not only the destruction of the state of Israel, they call for the murder of Jewish people around the world. This is in their charter. This is not the extreme uh, wing of Hamas or the military wing of Hamas. This is the raison d'etre. This is in their constitution, and it comes out of the Brotherhood. The Iranian Revolutionary Regime, Qatar. Qatar is the paymasters of Hamas. Qatar has one of the most important military bases of our country in, in their country. Why is this country not demanding from Qatar the extradition of people who ordered the massacre of innocent people? When will Washington stand up and make demands from our allies who are harboring people who committed a pogrom? Qatar celebrated, celebrated the pogrom on October the 7th with Iran and Hamas. So we have very important domestic questions and international questions, and the rot is in our country. The rot is in our media and in our best academic institutions. Thank you for that. Um, Congressman Roy, um, you have worked to, uh, to counter that rot. Um, you have introduced legislation, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency UNRWA Accountability and Transparency Act, um, so if you could tell us a bit about that and, and you know, what inspired you to bring that legislation forward and who else you would like to see held accountable as we do face this tide, this overwhelming tide of Jew hatred. Well, look, UNRWA has a long-standing history of uh, effectively supporting uh, Palestinians and anti-Israeli uh, uh, policies and that funding going through UN uh, needs to stop. I mean, going to the part here. And, and if I had to say one thing, and look, and I introduced that legislation and, and happy to press for it. Um, we've introduced other uh, bills to defund the United Nations Human Rights Council, which is an, just an absurd entity on its face. But yet we keep doing it. I mean, if, I, if, if you can walk out of this room with one thing from at least my participation in this panel is why in the hell do we fund the very things that are destroying our country and undermining our freedom and our own national security? But we fund it all day long, every day. And if you want to know what is at the center of this fight over the Speaker of the House, yes, we need a Speaker of the House. Yes, I hope we get it done this week. But not at the expense of changing this town. This town has got to change. We have for my entire life, I'm 51 years old, my entire life, we have been funding the very things we campaign against. We campaign against them, but we fund them. We fund the United Nations. We fund UNRWA. We fund the Human Rights Council. We fund all of these entities, direct funding to the Palestinians, which goes directly to Hamas. We've been doing that. Why on earth would we do that? And, and that's at, at the center of our debate right now about what we're doing in this town and whether or not we should continue doing the same thing we've been doing and expect a different result. Um, and I would tell you that this is all directly connected, by the way, to the funding of higher education. 
everything Ken just talked about with respect to what's going on in our universities is 100% correct. But I go back to my point. You're funding it. With your tax dollars and our borrowed dollars, you're funding it. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars over the years going to these so-called elite institutions of higher ed, poisoning the minds of our kids to hate America, to hate Western values and principles, to uh, frankly fund them to not actually learn skills to be meaningful participants in society, but rather sit around on Twitter and social media in their parents' basement harassing Americans who are actually adding value. You're funding that. You've got to ask yourselves why. It, it's, a, it's a fundamental question. I went to the University of Virginia and, you know, steeped in Jeffersonian tradition, blah, blah, you know. Um, but it's an embarrassment of an institution. I'm going to say that right now. The University of Virginia is an embarrassment of an institution. Students for Justice in Palestine released a statement at UVA in support of the Palestinian liberation, calling the brutal attack on Israel, quote, a step towards a free Palestine. A professor at UVA offered extra credit for students who attend a discussion about how to, quote, stand in solidarity with Palestinians resisting occupation. That is a professor at a taxpayer-funded university in, the univer in Virginia, founded by Thomas Jefferson, getting extra credit from a professor to these students. Um, I could go on and on about some of this stuff, but UVA distributed an article on social media that day focused on the crisis in Israel and Gaza, particularly ensuring that university personnel are not in immediate danger. That's it. They didn't issue any statement of moral clarity. Compare that, though, to something closer to leadership from Ben Sass at the University of Florida, in which Ben said, quote, I will not tiptoe around this simple fact. What Hamas did is evil, and there is no defense for terrorism. This shouldn't be hard. Sadly, too many people in the elite academia have been so weakened by their moral confusion that when they see videos of raped women, hear of a beheaded baby, or learn of a grandmother murdered in her home, the first reaction of some is to provide context, quote unquote, and blame the raped women, beheaded baby, or the murdered grandmother. In other grotesque cases, they express simple support for the terrorist. This thinking isn't just wrong, it's sickening. It's dehumanizing. It is beneath people called to educate our next generation of Americans. It could go further, let me be clear. But that's the kind of thing we need to see from leaders at universities. And that's what we need to see from universities around the country. And we should be demanding it, particularly from taxpayer-funded universities, but also donors to all these massive endowments at places like Harvard, where you've got kids trolling around the university up and down stairs, uh, you know, acting like they're somehow, you know, better than the rest of us telling us how to live our lives. But I need to give a shout out here to Governor DeSantis in Florida for taking this head on, for absolutely turning the education establishment in Florida upside down. And every Republican governor, every governor, but I'm going to be partisan here, every Republican governor in the nation should be ashamed they're not doing the same thing. Texas should be doing that in Texas. Every single state. Enough. Enough.
Thank you, sir. We, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, and Ken, uh, Congressman Roy just mentioned Students for Justice in Palestine, SJP. I know that uh, the Louis Brandeis Center um, was leading an effort just recently on a, an SJP uh, campus um, program they had on, on December, I'm sorry, on October 12th, the National Day of Resistance. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there and, uh, and, you know, how do we turn this tide of what's going on on the campuses? Sure. So I'll give you a few examples of what's happening on the campus and why it is that, respectfully, I agree that uh, President Ben Sass's statement was one of the best, maybe the best, but... It's a low bar. Low, well, it's a low bar, and I'm not sure that it was good enough for the University of Florida, but it certainly isn't enough for the universities that are saying much worse. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing uh, campuses, I mean, there are a handful where I've gotten reports of uh, physical attacks on Jewish students uh, in the wake uh, for the call for resistance. That's what resistance is, right? When they use the term resistance, they're using the Hamas term. So they're calling for people to join in a worldwide movement that has reached its culmination so far in a pogrom um, involving uh, torture, rape, and murder. So they're calling for people around the world to join in the sort of atrocities that have already happened. And in the wake of that, of course, we're seeing physical attacks on Jewish students. Of course, we're seeing vandalism of uh, Jewish institutions. Of course, we're seeing students being um, followed, being taunted, being harassed in various sorts of ways. This is happening all over the place. And it's often supported by faculty members. And seldom are university administrators really doing very much, if anything. Now keep this in mind. If you're thinking about the campus in the same way after October 7 that you did before October 7, you're not thinking about it right. Because prior to that, yes, we were seeing environments made toxic by anti-Semitic and anti-American ideology. Yes, we were seeing Jewish students who were being harassed, marginalized, and excluded to the extent that Zionism was an integral part of their identity. But what we're seeing now is university-funded, and in some cases taxpayer-funded, efforts to advance in a conscious and intentional manner the program and communications agenda of a State Department-designated terrorist organization. To be clear, what I'm describing is potentially a felony. So if you're a university president who's not sure whether he should or shouldn't make a statement, let me say that on many campuses, it's too late anyhow. Statements are okay in response to statements. If people are simply saying false things, you can say things that are truth. If people are saying things that are immoral, you can give a moral example. If people are committing assault and vandalism, you can't just make a statement. If your university's facilities and resources are being used in a way that intentionally advances the agenda of a terrorist organization, if you aren't sure whether you are committing a felony, forget about the statement. You need to take much greater actions even than the best of the university presidents are making. We need to hear very strong messages from university presidents, from attorneys general, from governors, that this can't continue. It's not a question of political disagreement. 
it's not even just a question of bigotry or harassment anymore. Now it's also a question of whether our public institutions are being used not only to undermine American foreign policy, but potentially to advance terrorism in a way that is federally criminal. It, it, it's really just, you know, unbelievable. As, as we talk it through, it's, it's just kind of hard, I think, for all of us to process where we are at right now. Um, and part of where we're at, Charles, I want to bring this one to you, is not only the uh, pro-Hamas rallies that we saw on the college campuses, but also pro-Hamas rallies in cities all around the world. So, uh, you know, if you could help us understand, what, what do we make of that? What do we make of, of these, you know, thousands of people pouring out in the streets, not only in Europe, but right here in New York. I'm sorry, not here in Union, Washington, D.C. as well, unfortunately, but also in New York, in Brooklyn yesterday we saw. And, uh, and also I want to just um, contrast that with the fact that not that long ago we were talking about a potential peace between Israel, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, something that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu of the United Nations described not only as a peace between countries, nation states, but really a, a bringing together of, of Islam and Judaism. So how do, how do we understand what's happening right now? So I think it's complex. I think just also to touch on the Students for Justice in Palestine, what's happening on campus, in a way, they're the shock troops. They make faculty and students feel uncomfortable. Texas A&M, your home state, we discovered $1.5 billion went to Texas A&M. They have a contract which I believe violates US law. We uncovered 502 research projects, including connecting to the Los Alamos nuclear research laboratories. According to the contract, Qatar owns all of the intellectual property that these 502 research projects are developing. So I'll be happy to share the report with you, but that's just the tip of an iceberg. What's happening at Texas A&M is pervasive across the United States and other Western countries. So how does Hamas and Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, get so much traction? About 35 years ago, Edward Said, Columbia University professor, a brilliant scholar and propagandist, he proclaimed in 1982 that he was the last Jewish intellectual, that all the Jews, all the Jewish professors were fat squires in the suburbs of America, and that he was the, the inheritor of the Frankfurt School of Thought, and he was the last Jewish intellectual and that Palestinians were the Jews, and the Jews were the Nazis. Now, he said this in 1982, and people dismissed him as being, you know, crazy and, you know, disconnected from reality. Fast forward, 40 years of hundreds of billions of dollars being pushed into our best universities in the Western world, you know, creating in this climate of sort of post-modernity that is in the Ivy Leagues and the best universities, that are critical of American power and Western hegemony, and that the West has to you know, take a step back from the world order, uh, we've heard this from different administrations, and to become weaker. And in a weird sense, there's this sort of the red-green alliance because the radical Islamist, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Iranian Revolutionary Regime, the Muslim Brotherhood, they also believe in decolonization and uh, you know, reducing the power of the West. 
So the radical postmodernist in this intellectual moment with Islamists have a similar agenda. And 40 years of miseducation combined with the, the emergence of uh, political Islam in, in countries that are the states are weakening and they're filling vacuums, they've been able to sort of push this red-green alliance with intellectuals in the West and the Islamists in, the, in Arab and Muslim countries. And this red-green alliance is actually bearing fruit. And we see it being reported you know, on the streets of London and also in, in Oxbridge and in the BBC and the Guardian. And it's, it's you know, that, that rot that I refer to is sort of swept into North America and to Canada. I was just in Montreal on the weekend, and I'd say, I was with a group of friends at a funeral, unfortunately, and I'd say about 75% of my friends, their homes were surveilled. People are taking pictures of Jewish homes as a form of intimidation, but also as the call to ISIS and by the Iranian revolutionary regime to potentially activate sleeper cells and terrorists in, in, in Europe and North America, these threats are gaining prominence. And we in the West have been asleep. And as the congressman said, you know, what are democratic values? What are Western values? What are American values in the face of this anti-American, anti-democratic, anti-Western, anti-Jewish, anti-Christian, and anti-moderate, decent Islam? Thank, thank you, Charles. And uh, and I and I think part of what I heard you say right now is is the question I want to to pose to Congressman Roy. American Jews right now are uh, are frightened beyond words. Um, our institutions are having almost daily security briefings. Um, we found out this weekend that the president of a of a synagogue in Detroit was found stabbed outside of her home, and everyone thinks it's a hate crime, but we are awaiting uh, word from the authorities. Meanwhile, uh, you have Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, the squad, continuing to spread lies about Israel. Congressman, what do you what would you like to see from your fellow members of Congress, and what do you think the U.S. government's responsibility is to the Jewish minority population of the United States? Well, that's a seminar question in of itself. I mean, the amount of, of, of things that I think we ought to talk about. But in short, um, you need to have very clear, um, unmistakable solidarity with Israel and with the Jewish population by the leadership of this country. It needs to be unequivocal. Yeah. Um, there needs to be zero tolerance along the lines that Ken was just describing, not just at universities, but around the country with respect to the kinds of things we're seeing, the violence, uh, obviously this unfortunate, um, terrible uh, murder of, of, of the woman, I believe, in Detroit, who I believe was, by the way, I think a former Democrat staffer. I think there was, I mean, yes. you know, this is discrimination straight up uh, with respect to being anti-Semitism and hatred towards Israel. And we'll see and let the facts play out on, on that case, but but that's what we're seeing. And, and look, I wanna be clear. We obviously have to and believe in maintaining unfettered free speech and the ability for people to express their views. And none of us would suggest otherwise. But the idea that you can allow, as I was watching unfold in Minnesota, mobs take over the street and corner a man in his car about two hours ago or whatever it was in, 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 in Minneapolis or Minnesota, um, the idea that we're going to allow mobs to rule in this country, um, we need as leadership to be very clear about how we stand. And moral clarity actually matters. Um, that's 
the thing that has been missing from our leadership for a long time, um, particularly from this administration, but generally speaking among our leaders, even Republicans, to be frank, you know, it's awfully simple to go down and do one of these resolutions. You know, it's, oh, I've got a resolution. I stand with Israel. Okay. Uh, wear a pin. I stand with Israel. Great. But what are you doing to send a signal of actual, full, complete moral clarity that we are proud of our Western values? We are proud Americans. We are proud to stand with Israel. We are proud of our uh, Judeo-Christian values. We are proud of what we've done as a country. We're not going to apologize for them. We, in fact, we're going to stand for them, advance them, promote them around the world, and do so unapologetically. If we don't begin to, not just begin, if we don't do that uh, with rapid energy, right now, then we are going to lose this country. and We're going to lose all that we've advanced for Western civilization. So I, that's uh, my answer is it needs to be unmistakable, it needs to be clear, and it needs to stand on the moral footing uh, of our actual belief in our own values and not, uh, not being apologetic. Yeah, and thank you for that. Um, I'm being told by Heritage staff that we can start the audience Q&A, uh, so we'll take that. I had an audience question. Um, so one of you spoke a bit about a few things that the Biden administration is doing to combat anti-Semitism. Do you think they should be doing more? And what kind of initiatives would you recommend? This could be a question for any of you. Thank you. May I start? Yeah. So the Biden administration issued a national strategy on dealing with anti-Semitism and should get applauded for its uh, breadth. Uh, and for the amount of public attention they brought to the uh, issue. But in terms of uh, substantive work they're doing, uh, I would say that so far it has lagged short of the last few administrations. I would also say that if there has been a sense from those speaking with people in the Biden administration that they issued their national strategy and now they just sort of uh, execute it, and do nothing more until after the election. I hope no one in the administration has been thinking that since October 7th, because while there are some good things in the national strategy, it wasn't sufficient for October 6th, and it sure isn't sufficient for now. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, the Biden administration has continuously promised to issue a formal regulation that would implement uh, the Trump executive order on combating anti-Semitism, and continually throughout this administration has delayed doing so. The current deadline self-imposed by the Biden administration is December of this year. Notably, they've been saying very little bit of, about it. They haven't even mentioned it in uh, many months, leading some to think that they're not even gonna do it. At a minimum, they should be doing what they promised. The U.S. Education Department Office for Civil Rights has issued some materials, but when it comes to the anti-Zionist forms of anti-Semitism, hasn't even spoken with the same specificity that we've even seen from the White House. At a minimum, they should be able to do that. And now look at all the campuses at which there is so much anti-Semitism over the last two weeks that all you need to have is Google and you can see substantial amounts of harassment in hostile environment, which the Department of Education is obligated to address. The Education Department shouldn't be waiting to get complaints. There should be a nationwide compliance initiative from the Secretary of Education right now 
at a minimum, to address those campuses where obviously there are problems because they're all over the blogosphere and the papers. I'm just going to add a 30-second aside. Um, I am not an enormous advocate of um, hate crimes. Um, I do not like getting the federal government into people's heads and uh, making determinations about why a crime was committed. That's just a general position of mine. I voted against somewhat infamously and took a lot of heat for voting against the Emmett Till bill. I voted against a bill on COVID hate crimes. I voted, I voted against a bunch because I just don't trust the federal government, and I never will. I'm a part of it. Don't trust it. It's going to be very clear. But that having been said, the thing that we can best do is stop funding stupid. If people have to go earn a living to live, they're not going to be spending their time on the streets doing stupid crap. Like, we've got to stop funding people to do all manners of ridiculous things. Stop funding universities to allow all manners of stupid things. I'm telling you, stop funding the beast. It's the best thing we could possibly do. I'll just add very briefly to your question. It's also uh, kind of mind-boggling that CARE was involved in the White House uh, position on anti-Semitism. And I would urge everybody to look at what CARE has been doing in the last two weeks and whether that fits into a proper White House initiative dealing with anti-Semitism. To, to me, it does not. Yeah. Concur, 100%. Hi, Jennifer Gillardi. Thank you all for being here. It's such an important topic. Um, Congressman Moore, you talked about the moral clarity, standing up for our values, Western values, Judeo-Christian principles, the thing that this country was founded on. And then I hear things about like the race to dinner, where women pay to have someone come in and tell them they're racist, and this guilt. Like there's a there's a guilt factor. And I just don't understand how we can, you know, it, it kind of motivated the pro-Palestine because all of a sudden we feel guilty for other people's misfortune, right? We feel guilty for the people in Gaza that it was up, it was somebody else's fault. We're always pointing the finger at somebody else instead of looking inside. So I just don't like this, this, how do we get rid of the people who are, feel guilty about being American, guilty about being Caucasian, guilty about, because unless they're playing on that, do you know what I mean? They they play on this this empath this I think it comes from a good place, particularly in women. Like I don't know if you've seen this thing race to dinner. People hire like a, a facilitator. Who's who's the woman that wrote the book on anti race how to be it? Robin D'Angelo. They hire a type like her to come in. They get a group of their friends, and then this woman starts starts picking them apart about you're a racist, and this is what you do to do this, and this is what you do, and then these we come out feeling small. So, so yeah, I mean, I think... I so think I just think this weakens the moral clarity, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any suggestions, because no policy is going to fix that. Yeah, I mean, look, my, my answer on that, again, there's a long answer, short answer. Short answer is our churches and synagogues have got to stop sucking. They do. They are absolutely not promoting moral clarity. They're sitting around in this wishy-washy, you know, let's name our church something nice that seems non-threatening and wear purple vests and pointy glasses with smoke and say this is church. That's crazy. Like, we, our churches need to stand up and be churches. Our synagogues need to stand up and speak moral clarity, number one. And number two, families and communities have to continue to be built around families and communities and churches and not around these stupid, painful devices that are killing our kids and killing our entire societies because all they're doing is spending their time on this. 
Um, and you know, the third thing, and I'm going to go back to it. I'm sorry, I'm beating the drum. If you don't have the ability to spend your time doing that stupid stuff, then you're not gonna, right? I mean, like my great, great grandfather was a Texas Ranger in the central Texas area in the 1870s. He had to figure out how to get water, food and dodge like Comanche raids. So he wasn't sitting around wondering like, oh, when's I'm, when am I gonna get my free check from the federal government to fund my therapy session? Like, it really is. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I'm just, we keep borrowing money, printing money, funding universities, funding programs, paying people not to work, and we wonder why they're running around doing stupid crap. And so, I just, I, until we stop doing that, I, we're going to keep getting more of it. Hi. Um, I, my name is Erica Mashahedi, and I'm so happy to be here today. I'm Jewish and also a conservative. I used to work for your old boss, Ted Cruz, and um, you survived to tell the tale. I survived to tell I'm the tale. I was former chief of staff, so you know. yeah. Yeah, um, and I have kind of a two-pronged question, and I tend to agree with a basic distrust of government, even though I have served in it myself. The first is, how can we trust this administration or further uh, U.S. governments to make the right decisions? on these, this issue with Israel and our alliances when we have individuals like Nejwa Ali, who is at DHS vetting refugees, and we are unable to fire her because she's a civil servant and the only thing she is is on leave. And then we also have individuals like Samantha Powers, who once advocated for boots on the ground in Israel in order to free Gaza and to free Palestine um, as the only method for getting a two-state solution as a leader at USAID. And then I think, you know, the bigger question is, with individuals like that in our government and this press, this push to connect Israel with Ukraine, two separate conflicts, how do we engender the support of the American people for Israel when they are wondering if this is going to be a third world war. And that is, you know, that's the talk online, that's the memes are what's coming out. And I don't think anybody would want to see American boots on the ground. And yet, you know, that risk with our carrier fleet over being in um, Mediterranean, you know, it's heightened. And so people are seeing that and they're wondering, how do we support Israel without escalating this to be some sort of pro, like anti-Russian conflict where there's not a lot there to support it? Thank you. So I think, Congressman, this one's for you, but but I do have a, an extension of that question for, for our other panelists. Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to monopolize the time, guys. I, I, I mean, on this, um, on this question, there was a lot in there. I'll try to keep it brief so we can go to some other questions. But uh, I'm going to, in reverse order, because that, that last question would be the most important. We have got to separate those issues, okay? We can have a debate about Ukraine and Ukraine funding and, and, and make a decision that's about our national security interests and whether we have the money for it. But we need to separate those. The fact the administration wants to jam us is not an accident, right? They want that to be one big pot of money. By the way, they also want to throw $14 billion on it, allegedly, for border security, which will do nothing but process more people. And oh, by the way, all the people out there saying, oh, you know, we've got a deal to make sure the refugees can come to the United States. Hold your horses. Like, hold your horses for a second. I do not trust this administration to vet the people that are be coming in here as refugees 
uh, from this conflict. I don't. I don't trust them. And with all due respect to uh, Ambassador Haley, I totally disagree with her. Okay, and and that's the kind of stuff that comes from the little circles in the Acela corridor that sounds nice in coffee shops or you know on little drinking a little wine or something. I mean, the fact of the matter is, we need an actual policy that stands on the back of American sovereignty unapologetically, that we know who comes in and out of our country, that we have a strong border, and that we're standing alongside Israel without complicating it into the mire that is the debate over Ukraine. 117 Republicans voted against a standalone bill with respect to the funding for Ukraine in the last uh, debate that we had with respect to the DOD funding. $300 million was all that was. It wasn't $80 billion or $60 billion. We need to have a full-throated debate on the floor of the House for an extended period of time about why Ukraine is in our national security interest and, importantly, how we're going to pay for it. My position is for any speaker, anybody who wants to be speaker of the House, you will pay for these supplementals. You go take it out of the Inflation Reduction Act. You go take it out of the expansion of the IRS. But you go find money for it or don't come to my door. I'm going to oppose it. And that will force the kind of concrete decision-making we have to make in the Congress. Well, I'll, we'll maybe just take another question from the audience. Hi, I'm Lindsay Singleton. So in the context of a lot of the attacks against corporate wokeism, I'm curious what you all think companies should be saying about this. Is it is this different than, than them coming out and talking about other issues? What would a good response from corporate America look like? Well, to begin with, I would say that those in the corporate world, especially the uh, human resources world, can look to SHRM, the Society of Human Resources Manager, as a good uh, source of advice on that. I've shared my thoughts uh, with them, and they have it on, on their website. There are a number of things that they should do. To begin with, there are things that they already should have been doing. A lot of corporations have... Uh, months to recognize um, African-American women, Asian, and other workers, but don't have them for Jewish workers. Uh, May is Jewish American uh, History Month. Uh, let them recognize that. Some of them have um, employee uh, resource groups for African-American and Hispanic and uh, other uh, identity groups, but have refused to uh, allow their Jewish uh, workers to uh, create them based on the notion that Jewishness is a religion only. They should uh, be educated on that uh, and provide the same ERG opportunities for Jewish uh, employees as, as for others. Uh, they should monitor uh, their DEI programs uh, to begin with to see whether they're making things worse, because sometimes that is the case. And certainly, it should make them better. To the extent that they have uh, education programs and various forms of discrimination, they should make sure that they're including anti-Semitism, including those forms of anti-Semitism that we're seeing today, which is to say left-wing as well as right-wing anti-Semitism. To the extent that they made statements about uh, the Ukraine uh, invasion or other world affairs, they should be making them about the Hamas pogrom uh, as well. Uh, to the extent that they make accommodations for other workers who have various sorts of needs, uh, they should consider their uh, Israeli-American uh, employees who might be called to uh, duty in Israel and might need some sort of accommodations. They should certainly be making the sorts of statements that they make uh, for others. And they should be considering both anti-Semitism and Jewish identity in the same way that they treat any other sort of ethnic or racial background. If I, if I may respond to the two questions together. Uh, your question about World War III, I think from... Uh, an Islamist, political Islamist perspective, World War III is here. The Iranian Revolutionary Regime, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Muslim Brotherhood, 
has declared a war against the state of Israel, the Zionist entity, and the Jewish people. And they're out to not only destroy Israel, but to kill Jewish people all over the world. That's their stated objective. But we're the little Satan. The big Satan is the United States of America and other Western democracies, and they are dedicated to the weakening and the destruction of democratic countries. That's their stated goal. So the war is here. Now, whether we wake up and recognize it and admit to it and deal with the reality, that's another story. You know, as the, the Chinese, there's a Chinese proverb that says, you can't wake up a dog that's pretending to sleep. Interesting. In terms of corporations, I think, you know, corporations have a, a responsibility to the safety and security of this country. And if they're doing business with Qatar, which is very lucrative, if they're doing business with, the, with entities in that region, I really think they have to rethink their strategy because we've kicked the can down the road, but it's getting to a point where I don't know if we can kick it down the road anymore. And I think there has to be political will and leadership from, from corporate America as well to confront this uh, very dangerous situation. Just add 30 seconds on, tack onto that. Uh, agreed, uh, and agreed with respect to the war that we face in Iran and, and, and everything that you just said. Uh, what, what I just want to be clear about is for us to confront it, in my view, in Congress and generally, we need to be very clear about what we're doing and not allow it to become this sort of amalgamation of just continued funding with no actual strategy. So for me, that's why I want separate consideration of, of how we deal with Israel and Ukraine. All of this is related and how we're dealing with China and everything else. I don't, I'm not for one saying that we don't need a strategy on Ukraine. What I'm saying is just sending, throwing money at it to me is not a strategy to make sure we confront and win. Uh, in our national security interests. So that's why I want those separated. Uh, it's why I want a revisiting of the authorizations of the use of military force. I don't want to remove our ability to go act under a use of military force. I just don't want to operate under a 20-year-old one for Iraq. That's insane. We need to actually have a clear vision and mission for what we want to try to accomplish. Uh, the last one on the corporate stuff, agreed. My only deal here is like, corporations need to just get out of the po politics business. Like, you know, Bud Light should just make a beer and shut up. I mean, let's just be very clear. Like, I don't need to hear all of your politics and everything else. Uh, frankly, corporations are too big and too powerful in this country. I've got a real problem with corporate cronyism and how much we've been having government funding and government support of very large corporate entities. Um, I'm a big believer that we need to be building up small businesses here so that corporations have don't have as much power as they've got. I'm certainly glad Target and Bud Light have gotten their rears kicked over the last three months. Yes, and so I, I do believe uh, our time is running out. Um, we have time for just one last question. Hi, so I am a Jewish college student, and me and my friends have personally experienced um, anti-Semitism, specifically at by the organization that you mentioned, Students for Justice in Palestine, for example, in my university, George Washington University, the president of Students for Justice in Palestine has been personally harassing Jewish students, myself included. Um, how can we ensure that Jewish students feel safe in college campuses, expressing both their Jewish identity and their Zionist beliefs? Ken, I think this one's for you. <laughs> Happy to talk to you about it, happy to talk to you now about it, happy to talk to you afterwards about it. I think that you might have heard in the introduction, I'll be teaching at uh, George Washington University. Uh, that's right. So I'll be teaching uh, uh, there uh, next semester. Um, to the extent that you or your um, fellow sisters feel that you have been harassed, uh, certainly um, 
talk to the Louis D. Brandeis Center. I'll be here um, uh, afterwards. Um, there are a lot of resources that can help you feel safe. We talk to students uh, every day uh, about that. Of course, there are also other institutions on campus that can support you, ranging from Hillel to Chabad uh, and, and Jewish, uh, Jewish studies. But depending on what the issue is, I think the most important thing is that you not uh, feel alone. Um, if you are facing a problem, we are here to support you. So uh, for those who are not in this room, it's BrandeisCenter.com. For those who are in this room, happy to talk to you about, about how we can be helpful later. If, yeah, if I could just add very quickly, also on our website, isgap, isgap.org, there's a report by, uh, about the Students for Justice in Palestine that we published about two years ago. And in a sense, I, and this is very important, we have to know the mind of our enemy. It should not be a surprise that the Students for Justice in Palestine are harassing Jewish students and faculty on universities across the country. They are directly affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood, who wants to not only destroy Israel, but they want to destroy Jewish people. And these are the organizations that are operating on our campus in the hundreds. Could you imagine if there was another organization calling for the murder of another group of students on campus by their religion, their race, or their gender? It wouldn't be tolerated. So I think university presidents, the law enforcement really need to understand what SJP is all about. I'll just close with this. You're, you're not alone. And just remember that uh, if my office can ever be helpful from right here in D.C., let us know. Um, and, you know, I've been taking a lot of um, solace in how much I've seen a lot of the Jewish students around universities, um, you know, let their voice be heard and and stand up in the face of what's happening with the universities and these groups uh, targeting you. So God bless you. God be with you. Um, you know, we're all here in this little blip of time. We're here for this continuum, and, and it's, to, it's to serve God, and, and God bless you for being here today. Well, um, and we need to wrap up now. I just want to say that um, it seems like we're at a real crossroads for our country, and uh, we all have decisions to make right now. Um, again, I want to express my gratitude to the Heritage Foundation, to Dr. Kevin Roberts, Dr. Victoria Coates for hosting this uh, really important conversation, to my panelists. It was really wonderful to hear from each of you. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our panelists, and welcome to all of you. I'm Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation. It is a pleasure to do two things. First of all, to once again welcome you to the Heritage Foundation. This is always a timely topic, but especially now. And secondly, it is a distinct pleasure to introduce our next speaker. I know we're all interested in hearing his comments and his wisdom. Ronald Lauder has served as president of the World Jewish Congress since 2007 an international philanthropist, investor, art collector, and public servant. Lauder also demonstrates his deep commitment to his Judaism through a wide range of other philanthropic endeavors that reach around the world. As president of the WJC, Ambassador Lauder meets regularly with heads of state, prime ministers, and government representatives to discuss and advance causes of concern to Jews and Jewish communities internationally. He advocates for the importance of supporting Israel especially in times when the state or its citizens are under attack. And he encourages and aids the development of vibrant Jewish communities 
around the world. As you know, he served with distinction in the Reagan administration, and I would say, leading I, leading the Heritage Foundation, count on Ambassador Waters' wisdom. Know that he is one of the most powerful voices on the planet, not just for Jews, but for all of us on whom in our nature is imprinted self-governance and flourishing. It is an honor, an absolute honor, to welcome him here to the Heritage Foundation. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Kevin, and my great friend, Victoria. It's my great honor to be here at the Heritage Foundation, which is directly connected to my hero, Ronald Reagan. I first met Governor Reagan in the mid-1960s in my parents' living room. That evening had a profound impact on me. I was inspired by his vision of America and his optimism. When Governor Reagan became president in 1980, I worked in his administration in the Defense Department. And it was Ronald Reagan who set off a chain of events that changed my life completely. Let me explain. In 1986, President Reagan appointed me as the U.S. Ambassador to Austria. That was at the same time of the Kurt Waldheim controversy. Waldheim was Secretary General of the UN, and he, and he just left the United, United Nations in disgrace for lying about his Nazi past. But instead of going away quietly, Kurt Waldheim went home and ran for president, telling Austrians he didn't do anything they didn't do, which was, of course, true. And they elected him. As ambassador, I made a decision not to attend the inauguration because of his Nazi past. From that moment on, I was no longer the American ambassador. I was referred to, in certain quarters, as the Jewish American ambassador. It was the first time in my life I came up against real anti-Semitism. And it changed me from the world's most assimilated Jew to someone who has devoted his life protecting the Jewish people. Just before I say anything more, I'd like to say that I thank Kurt Waldheim for making me into a true Jew. The topic of this talk was said long ago, the future of the U.S.-Israel alliance at 75. Over the last two weeks, that alliance has never been more important, but it's also shined a spotlight on a growing threat right here in the United States and all around the world, a threat that no one can no longer ignore. That's what I intend to talk about today. But first, I want to make one thing crystal clear at the start. On October 7th, Hamas terrorists broke through the fence 
separating Gaza from Israel, with two aims, and two aims only, to kill as many Jews as they could and to take hostages back to Gaza. They raped, tortured, burned alive, and decapitated Jewish babies. They decapitated babies. You've heard that October 7th was, was saw the greatest loss of Jewish life on any day since the Holocaust. But there's one difference, and one huge difference. The Nazis tried to hide their crimes from the world. Hamas videotaped and even live-streamed their atrocities over a background of cheers. They didn't hide the hatred of Jews. They were proud of it. These awful images we see right here in full color. So you have expected the entire world to condemn it. Instead, on streets, not just in the Middle East, but in London, New York, Los Angeles, almost everywhere, and shockingly, on almost every college campus, we watched massive demonstrations, not in sympathy for the 1,500 Israeli men, women, and children who were butchered. Instead, young people are now waving Hamas flags and supporting Hamas. They denounce Israel for being a colonial oppressor, and they side with these barbaric terrorists. When 34 student groups at Harvard say, we hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all the unfolding violence, something has gone very wrong in our education system. Not long ago, the hatred of Israel and academia was confined to a few far-left socialist professors, or these from the Middle East. But this upside-down logic now has spread everywhere, and almost every college president and administrator is afraid to stand up and condemn it. How did this happen? How did we get there? Or what can we do to turn this around? The radical change that brought us here was slow and steady. Few people noticed it. That it was even happening. It began in the 1960s, when a generation of anti-war professors began teaching in college classes around the country. They eventually head departments and cut off any differing points of view in the PhD pipeline. They began to fill colleges with, with people who shared their visions and opinions. If you were working on a PhD in history and held conservative views, or just opinions that differed from the crowd, there was no job for you. Then, these radical ideas spread down to secondary schools. A political science professor at Spelman College, a self-described socialist anarchist named Howard Zinn, wrote a book called A People's History of the United States which he told us it was America, from Columbus to robber barons to Vietnam, that brought evil on the world. The book was not serious scholarship, but it was picked up by high school teachers 
who were taught by those radical professors. The reasoning came down to this. All opinions are equally valid. Well, all opinions are not equally valid. Some opinions are dead wrong. So now, the next generation was learning this Marxist history in high school. The book sold over two million copies, and that's a very negative impact on this generation. Remember the name Bill Ayers? He was a co-founder of, of the Weather Underground that bombed public buildings in the 1960s. He should have gone to prison for life, but the FBI botched his case. Instead, he went back, Ayers went back to school, got a PhD, and became a professor of education. He had a huge impact on the books that elementary students have read over the past four decades, painting the USA as a racist and evil country. There are many other with less famous names in schools and campuses around the country. They brought us to this present day. Our wonderful colleges that were the envy of the world and trained generations of America who built our bridges, conquered disease, and created businesses that employed millions of people have now produced students who cheer for terrorists, terrorists who slaughter women and children, and see America as evil. Over the last 50 years, colleges have taken out the core curriculum of Western civilization that all of us learned. Instead, we now have classes in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, in every school. Tabea Lee, an African-American and former DEI administrator, lost her job when she questioned the severe anti-Semitism at the center of DEI. Ms. Lee writes that DEI, at its core, believe the world is divided into two groups, the oppressors and the oppressed. Jews, DEI claims, are the oppressors, and Israel is branded as a colonial state. That means Israelis who built a country out of nothing, who created the only democracy in the Middle East, who defended their homeland in countless wars, and who fight for their lives at this very moment are now the oppressors. And don't think it's only the Jews that are the oppressors. Everyone here in this room probably falls into this category. In too many colleges, Israel is evil. The United States is evil. But the true evil of Hamas is the victim. Up is down, east is west. I should point out, there are many positive DEI programs in our corporations, especially at SD Lauder. But it's not just colleges where the problems lie, because they are training ground for the rest of society. Our great newspapers have always been an essential part of our democracy, keeping citizens informed. But today, they have, in too many places, their political beliefs, sometimes ahead of facts, this was evident last week when a hospital in Gaza was hit by a rocket. If you read the New York Times 
the first banner headline was that they put up, Israel strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. That was changed to at least 500 killed in strike on Gaza, hospital, Palestinians say, which was then changed to at least 500 killed in Gaza hospital, Palestinians say. Those headlines sparked riots, sparked riots around the world. We now know the truth. The hospital was not hit by Israel. It was hit by Hamas. It wasn't even a hospital that was hit. It was a parking lot. And it wasn't 500. It was probably less than 50. But what, most of the world won't know this because of that headline. Mark Twain's famous quote was, I quote, and it's never been more true than before, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the, sh while the truth is putting on its shoes. And Mark Twain wrote that over 100 years ago, before the internet. This very important paper must realize that when headlines are not correct, it can cause the death of Jewish people, especially children through the Jewish diaspora. Because of the last week's headline, synagogues were burned in three countries, remnants of Crystal Knock in 1938, and members of Congress, Talib and Omar, still continue to foment riots based on this lie. This is no different than the old blood libel that claimed Jews killed children to use their blood for Passover matzah. Those lives sparked programs which killed Jews by the thousands and burned down synagogues. And apparently, civilization has not advanced one iota since the Middle Ages. We see this throughout the media today at NPR, CNN, AP, and Reuters. But the worst is the BBC. They can't even call Hamas terrorists. Terrorists. They use the more benign term, militants. How can you not call these monsters terrorists? These are the same lies that cause Harvard students to demonstrate for Hamas. It's why voters elect representatives who I believe truly hate our country. And it's why we are in big trouble. Here is something all of you must remember. Throughout history, whatever begins with the Jews never ends with the Jews. We are the canaries in the mine shaft. Remember, Hitler went after the Jews first. But when it was all over, more than 60 million human beings were dead and two continents destroyed. Yes. We are the canaries in the mine shaft. And look around you. These canaries are dying. Take notice. The fact is, we are living through another McCarthyism. This one from the radical left. And it will aggressively attack you if you dare to question it. The new left-wing McCarthyism, or wokeism, has advanced dishonest views on gender, politics, race, history, and especially the core values that made the United States the beacon for the world. We must not let this woke 
McCarthyism destroy us. The hard-earned liberties that it took generations of Americans to achieve, liberties that drew millions to leave their homes and families to come to these shores, liberties that drew grandparents from Hungary, liberty that drew Liberate that drew all of you and all of our ancestors here as well. America and freedom of expression are all too necessary to let them just disappear in this dangerous wave of radicalism. I will not let this promise for all mankind be destroyed. And this is how I am fighting back. First, through the World Jewish Congress that defends hundreds of Jewish communities all over the world. I have traveled to 40 countries. I've been with prime ministers and presidents. I make them aware that we are watching everything going on in their countries for one simple reason, so that Jewish citizens can practice their faith in dignity and safety. I also created a foundation that has opened 30 Jewish schools throughout Central and Eastern Europe, where Jewish communities were almost destroyed. These, school, these schools have restarted vibrant new centers of Jewish life and fighting the dangerous intolerance right here at home on all Americans who care about our values, our freedom, and our children's future. We must be doing this for our children and grandchildren. My family is deeply involved in the University of Pennsylvania since my brother and I graduated 50 years ago. We created the Joseph Lord Institute of Wharton that offers advanced degrees in international business. We have given millions of dollars to Penn over the years because we believed in Penn and everything it stood for. Last month, several of Penn's departments held a conference called Palestine Rights Literature Festival. It claimed to focus on Palestinian writers. Instead, it was the biggest anti-Semitic and anti-Israeli pep rally ever held at Penn. One of the main speakers was Roger Waters of the rock group Pink Floyd, the same Roger Waters who used a large inflatable pig that floats above his concerts, a pig with a Jewish star on it. When I pointed out to Penn's president that this conference would tarnish Penn's reputation, she refused to cancel it, citing freedom of speech. Remember the reason that all opinions are equally valid. I have to wonder if a Penn would allow a conference that denounced Asians or Native Americans or blacks. They should not. But why is it okay? to say these things about Jews. Why is that acceptable? Remember, it's because we are the oppressors. It turned out to be the worst possible timing for Penn. The conference went on as scheduled, and it was bad as we feared. And then, just two weeks later, 1,500 Jews were slaughtered because they were Jews. Here is the part of a longer letter I wrote to Penn's president this past week. I quote, I have spent the past 40 years of my life 
fighting anti-Semitism all over the world. And never, my wildest imagination, thought I would have to fight it at my university, my alma mater, and my family's alma mater. I've been joined by other donors who have stopped their own gifts to Penn, including John Huntsman, who is not Jewish. He's just an honorable man. Every single university, every newspaper, every cable channel has to understand there are consequences for their actions. We can no longer be silent. None of us can sit back. Albert Einstein said it very well. The world will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but by those who watch them without doing anything. Let me repeat that. I think it's so important. The world will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but by those who watch them without doing anything. This is the time we all have to stand up and say, this insanity is over. We all have to stand up with Israel because it's democracy on the front lines of a deadly war and terror, a war they did not, did not go away after 9-11. We have to fight the left-wing McCarthyism of our alma maters, of our children's schools, everywhere. We have all to get up involved. We have to create a new syllabus to deprogram young people who have been brainwashed in our universities to believe that America is evil, that Israel is evil, that there is any merit to socialism over capitalism. I am well aware that Heritage has been fighting this fight for over 50 years. But we have to be honest. We are losing. We have to fight harder. The good news, we are not outnumbered. The radical left does not have more people behind them. They are just louder. We live, in a, we live in Washington or New York or California. You might think that we are a minority, but we forget there is a great, big, wonderful country out there with hardworking people, honest people, who are generous and good, but they don't like to get shoved around. And they so, certainly don't like to be told what to think, especially when it's nonsense. Let's always remember what Ronald Reagan said about the city on the hill. That shining city, still there. It never went away. And it's still worth fighting for. The battle is as important as any other great nation has ever fought. Let's fight it together for the sake of our children and grandchildren, for the sake of the entire world. It's a battle we can't afford to lose. My topic has been Israel at 75, but it's also about America at 247. We will all have to work very hard to make sure both countries flourish for many, many more years to come. Together, I know we will do this. May God bless the United States. May God bless Israel. And God bless all of you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.
I think we had a, a large group of people online standing and applauding too. I've never been more proud of my, my dear friend, Ambassador Ronald Lauder. So with those inspiring words, one thing I can always say about the heritage community is that we are ready and able to get into the fight. Uh, we look forward to continuing to fight with Ambassador Lauder, with all of our friends, to protect this critical relationship for the next 25 years and beyond. So thank you all for attending. Uh, thanks to all of our friends online who joined in. We have a reception out in the foyer for anyone who would like to, uh, would like to join us to continue this conversation, because this really is just the opening gambit in what we intend to be a major focus of heritage going forward. Thank you.